out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good afternoon. Tomorrow's election day and today's the day before the election day. It also is the last 12 days of Colin, whatever you want to make of it. We are here with you on a Monday afternoon reading uh, Nils Melser, The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution. We shall begin with Chapter 11 today. Thank you for joining. Um, This is the collapse of the Swedish case. Headwind from America. Only four days after I had visited Assange in Belmarsh on 13 May of 2019, the Swedish Prosecution Authority reopened its preliminary investigation against him. By now, for the third time, almost nine years had passed since his visit to Sweden, since that fateful day in August 2010, when the two Swedish women visited Clara Police Station in Stockholm, and the Swedish authorities zealously presented Assange to the world as a rape suspect. Um, <clears throat> thus successfully thwarting imminent establishment of WikiLeaks as a constitutionally protected press organization in Sweden. Since then, Swedish investigators had formally interviewed Assange twice, had heard numerous witnesses, and had carried out exhaustive DNA analyses. However, in the persistent lack of prosecutable evidence, the investigation had already been discontinued twice without Assange ever being formally charged with an offense. Now, the Swedish prosecution authority seemed bent on adding a third round to the procedural fiasco of its longest ever preliminary investigation. In all these years, no significant progress had been made, but the investigation had been deliberately prevented from progressing beyond preliminary stage. This was particularly convenient because, in the absence of a formal indictment, the Swedish authorities could continue to publicly portray Assange as a rape suspect without having to disclose their evidence and subject their allegations to judicial review. By May 2019, the allegations in the case of A had been time-barred almost four years in the case of S would expire in 15 months in August of 2020. Ultimately, The strategy of systematic procrastination on the part of the Swedish Prosecution Authority would deprive not only Assange, but also the two women of any chance to receive justice and redress. But that did not seem to bother the Swedish authorities. They had never shown any genuine interest in prosecuting Assange for sexual offenses, which they knew could not be proved in court. Instead, these allegations were artificially kept alive for the purposes of Assange's political persecution, not officially, of course, but as part of their informal, strong, and reliable intelligence cooperation with their transatlantic partner. But that was not something that the Swedish people and its parliament needed to know. Their interference would only have jeopardized these successful arrangements between the intelligence services of Sweden and the United States. For the Swedish Prosecution Authority, allowing their preliminary investigation in the cases of A and S to become time-barred without formal indictment was particularly advantageous. This meant that the case was formally closed and all the evidence, or lack thereof, sealed, archived, and withdrawn from public scrutiny. 
At the same time, the rape suspect narrative could be perpetuated indefinitely without ever coming before court. Publicly, this deliberately manufactured outcome could conveniently be blamed on Assange by accusing him of having evaded justice. The same narrative had been used already in August 2015 when the prosecutor allowed the case of A to become time-barred even though she had been in the possession of all the elements required to decide on a formal indictment of Assange since at least July 2011. On 12 April 2019, one day after Assange's arrest and more than a month before Sweden resurrected its preliminary investigation in the case of S for the third time, no less than 70 British MPs sent an open letter to Prime Minister Theresa May. They demanded that, in the event of the competition between a possible Swedish extradition request and the one already made by the United States, Assange should be extradited to Sweden. We must send a strong message of the priority the UK has in tackling sexual violence and the seriousness with which such allegations are viewed, the letter stated. The hypocrisy of these assertions was revealed when, in the same year, Prince Andrew, the youngest son of Queen Elizabeth II, was suspected in the United States of repeated sexual abuse of a minor as part of the Jeffrey Epstein case affair. The U.S. Department of Justice made a formal request to interview the prince as part of its investigation, but His Royal Highness declined. This time, curiously, those same MPs were not moved to send an open letter to the Prime Minister demanding that the prince be handed over to the United States. Forgotten was the need to send a strong message of priority the UK has in tackling sexual violence and the seriousness with which such allegations are viewed. In all likelihood, more than anything else, the open letter advocating Assange's extradition to Sweden was designed to woo British voters ahead of the upcoming general election in December of 2019. Water. The British people also strongly disliked the Anglo-American Extradition Treaty of 2003, a lopsided agreement that was perceived as being highly unfavorable to the United King due to Tony Blair's subservient interpretation of Britain's special relationship with the United States. By giving preference to the Swedish extradition request, criticism of British servility towards the United States could be deflated. At the same time, parliamentarians could take a strong public stance against sexual violence without having to lift a finger to improve the notoriously low prosecution and conviction rates for reported sexual offenses in the UK. Last but not least, by sending Assange to Sweden, Britain could avoid dealing with the political pressures resulting from the US extradition request and pass the problem on to Sweden. As patently demonstrated by the British Supreme Court's extradition decision in 2012, however, British real politic has long ceased to consider the opinion of Parliament. For years, the United States has regarded the Swedish rape narrative against Assange as welcome distraction from the war crimes and corruption revealed by WikiLeaks. But now, after the DNC leaks, the U.S. intelligence agencies had been managed to portray Assange as the scapegoat for Donald Trump's election victory in 2016, an event that had traumatized the very influential segments of the American public. I'm not sure that's true. That's just an interpretation. <sighs> the Swedish rape narrative was no longer needed because, by and large, the American public had taken the bait and was unlikely to find out about the true purpose of Assange's prosecution in time to prevent the criminalization of investigative national security journalism. Thus, 
10 days after the official reopening of the Swedish preliminary investigation into the case of S, the U.S. government doubled down with this with superseding indictment of 23rd May of 2019, the United States expanded their original indictment on a single charge of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion by 17 additional counts under the Espionage Act and crucially increased the maximum sentence from 5 to 175 years in prison. Compared to a potentially competing Swedish extradition request for lesser degree rape, which carried a maximum custodial sentence of four years, the U.S. request would certainly take precedence. Hedwin from London. In Sweden, Marianne Nye had retired from public service as Deputy Director of Public Prosecution. Eva Marie Persson was now in charge of the case. On 20 May 2019, Persson issued a press release announcing that she had applied to Uppsala District Court for a detention order against Assange based on which he had planned to issue a new European arrest warrant and obtain his surrender to Sweden. Because, of course, it was still necessary to question Assange in Sweden. On the same day, the Swedish prosecution authority also reached out to their British counterpart, quote, to make it clear that the possible EAW also includes a request for temporary surrender, end quote. Person had probably expected the Crown Prosecution Service to meet her with the same unconditional complicity that Marianne Nye had enjoyed for years. But Paul Close, the man formerly in charge in London, had retired too, and British legislation had since been amended to reflect the proportionality concerns raised by the Supreme Court in Assange's first Swedish extradition trial in 2012. Most importantly, however, the United States had now openly stepped into the ring with an extradition request of its own and, therefore, no longer depended on its reliable partner, Sweden, for the execution of its policies. Allison Riley, specialist extradition prosecutor at the CPS, initially responded that extending the European arrest warrant to a temporary surrender would not be a problem. But 24 hours later, on 21 May, the tone had changed. Presumably, the imminent prospect of a competing extradition request for Assange from Sweden had triggered consultations at the political level. Now, Prosecutor Riley suddenly confronted the Swedes with far-reaching questions in categorical terms. Can you explain why it is still necessary to interview Julian Assange? You will be aware of the new Section 12A of our law, which makes it imperative that there is a decision to charge and try a requested person in the requesting state before an EAW can succeed. If there's any suggestion that those decisions have not been made or that Julian Assange cannot be brought to trial unless he is first interviewed, the court will not order his surrender. In short, the harsh message com coming from London was that Assange would not be surrendered to Sweden unless it was already decided that he would be formally charged and tried for a criminal offense there. That was a remarkable shift from 2012 when Britain's Supreme Court had bent over backwards and ignored the will of par Parliament in order to allow Assange's forcible surrender to Sweden for the mere purpose of an interview for preliminary investigation. After almost nine years of comfortable tailwind from London, the Swedish Prosecution Authority was suddenly faced with the requirements of due process and the rule of law. Eva Marie Persson, 
knew, of course, that she had no chance of successfully prosecuting Assange. She did not even have enough probative elements to back up a formal indictment. There simply was no prosecutable ev evidence demonstrating Assange's culpability for any offense beyond reasonable doubt. As internal correspondence at the Swedish prosecution authority shows, Person therefore looked for alternatives to his formal extradition. Either Assange could again be questioned in London or, and this was her preferred option, the European arrest warrant, which she firmly expected to be issued, could be used to temporarily borrow Assange from Britain through the mechanism of the temporary surrender. By proposing this possibility to the British authorities in writing, the Swedish prosecution authority explicitly confirmed Sweden's willingness, always feared by Assange and always denied by the government, to circumvent legal hurdles to of formal extradition procedures with the instrument of temporary surrender. Nonetheless, Person was grappling with what seemed to be British obstruction. On 21 May 2019, she wrote in an email to a subordinate staff member, We have tried to find avenues for the United Kingdom to meet both the wishes of the United States and those of Sweden, but correspondence with Alison Riley seems to indicate that there is no interest in doing so in the UK. What avenues was Person talking about here? Was this about Assange's temporary surrender from Britain to Sweden? And, given the same mechanism was foreseen in the U.S.-Swedish extradition treaty, subsequently to the United States? Be this as it may, with its superseding indictment of 23rd May of 2019, the U.S. government signaled that they were no longer keen or even willing to take a detour via Sweden. They wanted Assange's direct extradition to the United States, headwind from Sweden. But the Swedish prosecution authority also faced unexpected headwinds at home. In order to issue a new EAW, person had to first obtain a detention order from Uppsala District Court. On Tuesday, 28 May, whoa, sorry about that, friends. 28 May of 2019, two and a half weeks after my prison visit to Belmarsh, I had transmitted my first official letter to the Swedish government expressing my concern about the alleged complicity of Swedish authorities in the prosecution and persecution and mistreatment of Assange. So on Friday of the same week, 31 May 2019, I released my press statement temporarily waking the mainstream press from its lethargy about Assange's human rights. On the following Monday, 3rd June 2019, the Uppsala District Court refused to issue a detention order against Assange on grounds of proportionality. According to the court, Assange was now serving a sentence in a British prison, so it was possible and acceptable for a Swedish prosecutor conducting a preliminary investigation to its interview with him in London in line with applicable international mutual legal assistance agreements. <clears throat> if and when the prosecutor reached the conclusion that Assange should be formally charged of a criminal offense, his extradition could then be still sought for the purpose of holding the trial. Good God. There are reach-arounds and reach-arounds. Of course, for the past nine years, there had never been any legal or practical obstacle to questioning Assange in London. Thus, the exact same considerations of proportionality 
should already have prevented the initial Sweden Swedish detention order and related EAW against him in November of 2010. So how come, after almost a decade, the Swedish judiciary suddenly decided to start treating Assange in accordance with the law? It's probably not too far-fetched to make a causal connection between the decision of the Uppsala court and my strong official statements a few days earlier. Like any other officials, judges do not want to end up on the wrong side of history. By deciding not to issue a detention order and to avoid an extradition request for the time being, the Swedish judiciary gained time. They could now wait and see whether the noise created by this UN special rapporteur would be loud enough to trigger a parliamentary investigation in Sweden or whether it would turn out to be a storm in a teacup they could safely ignore. For once, official self-interest seemed to work in Assange's favor, at least temporarily. However, for the investigation to be dropped altogether, a final element was still missing. The Day of Truth. When on 12 July 2019, I received the evasive reply of the Swedish government to my official letter of 28 May, it was immediately clear to me that I was not going to take no for an answer. Too much evidence had piled up before me to be able to sweep the emerging picture of massive judicial arbitrariness under the carpet and continue business as usual. Instead, I drafted a follow-up letter, which was transmitted to the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs on 12 September 2019, and made abundantly clear that I would not be fobbed off with platitudes. Whereas my first letter I had asked only five questions, my second letter contained 50. I confronted the government with a detailed catalog of perceived due process violations and other inconsistencies and asked them to explain point by point and in detail the compatibility of each of these acts and omissions of the Swedish authorities and of the overall impact of the Swedish investigation on the rights and reputation of Mr. Assange with Sweden's international human rights obligations, in particular with the presumption of innocence and with the principles of legality, impartiality, necessity, proportionality, efficacy, and good faith, all of which are intrinsic due processes, requirements, indispensable to justice and the rule of law. As usual, Swedish authorities were given 60 days to respond. Their reply arrived on 11 November, 2019, the very last day of that deadline. It consisted of three meager sentences acknowledging the receipt of my letter and informing me tersely in relation to the communication of 12 September 2019. I would like to refer to the government's response of 12 July 2019. The government has no further observations to make. In essence, of course, their initial response of 12 July 2019 had already made clear that the Swedish government had no further observations to make just more verbosely and with fourfold sorry, reference to the independence of the Swedish judiciary. Despite the Swedish government's demonstrative termination of any dialogue on this case, my follow-up letter seems to have had quite substantial effect behind the scenes. A few days later, on 19 November 2019, the preliminary investigation into the case of S was formally discontinued for the third and final time. In her decision, Prosecutor Person emphasized that S. has submitted a credible and reliable version of events. Her statements have been coherent, extensive, and detailed. However, she explained that support for the injured party's assertion 
and therefore the of the alleged criminal act is now deemed to have weakened, largely due to the long period of time that has elapsed since the events in question. In the prosecutor's overall assessment, the evidential situation has been weakened to such an extent that there is no longer any reason to continue the preliminary investigation. It cannot be assumed that further inquiries will challenge or change the evidential situation in any significant manner. The preliminary investigation is therefore discontinued. In reality, of course, there had never been any prosecutable evidence other than S's testimony, if the prosecutor still considered her testimony to be credible and reliable, then it was difficult to comprehend how its probative value could have so dramatically diminished over time. As a matter of logic, the only conceivable explanation for affirming the credibility and reliability of S's testimony while at the same time dismissing the credibility and reliable of, sorry, reliability of the official rape narrative was that one had nothing to do with the other. This left two possibilities. The first was that, contrary to the police report based on her statement, S herself had never alleged to have been raped, and that the prosecutor person had come to the same conclusion as her colleague Eva Finney nine years earlier, namely that S's testimony was credible, but did not give rise to any suspicion of criminal conduct. The second possibility was that the facts alleged by S constituted rape while the facts alleged by Assange did not and that all other evidentiary factors being equal the suspect had to be given the benefit of the doubt in dubio pro reo in both cases irrespective of what had really happened between S and Assange he had to be considered innocent as a matter of law of course, all of this had been known to the Swedish authorities already in September of 2010, but even now, the prosecutor could not bring herself to say any of this. Not a word about the presumption of innocence. Not a word of regret for all the almost 10 years of judicial arbitrariness at the expense of all three persons concerned, Assange and the two women. No redress for the reputational harm and the hostility humiliation and mistreatment they had suffered. No compensation for Assange's nearly 10 years of arbitrary detention solely due to untenable allegations of rape irresponsibly disseminated and perpetuated by the Swedish authorities. At the press conference, Person was asked whether she regretted the way the investigation had been handled. Once more, the absence of a firm denial was more revealing than the evasive content of the reply. She could only take personal responsibility for the last six months, person said, and during this time she had tried to conduct the investigation as quickly and quality-oriented as possible. However, she could not comment on what had happened under the responsibility of another investigator. It was possible that the prosecution authority would have to, quote, look into this question once all of this is over. To date, this appears to be the closest the Swedish authorities have ever come to a critical self-examination in this case. Since the sudden invocation of due process and the rule of law by their British counterparts and the district court of Uppsala, the Swedish prosecution authority had acted like a deer caught in the headlights, desperately scrambling for new investigative measures that could be taken to maintain a facade of credibility 
They saw the prospect and the rationale of their case against Assange dwindle rapidly towards total collapse. Prosecutor Person's internal directives issued during the summer of 2019 reveal the extent to which the Swedish investigation was in disarray and lacked the even most basic foundations of a prosecutable case. In her directive of 13 June, Person writes, we need to make a preliminary assessment of the evidence. Preliminary? Seriously? After nine years? How does the need for a preliminary assessment chime with the publicly proclaimed supposedly consolidated suspicion on probable cause? But Person continues, it is not appropriate for us to request permission to interview Assange in England if we do not consider that we have sufficiently strong evidence. This statement is quite revealing given that, in practice, even the flimsiest level of evidence is sufficient to justify interviewing a suspect. In another directive of 26 July, referring to various pieces of evidence, person writes, I'll have to read through them all and decide how strong the support is for the alleged crime really is. Emphasis in original. Really? How come it took the prosecutor nine years to ask the right question? According to Person, by July 2019, the oral evidence in support of the alleged offense has de deteriorated, as if the original statements from 2010 could no longer be used as evidence. If the memory and or willingness to contribute of Witness X has deteriorated in the same way as several other witnesses, I think that will be the nail in the coffin. My follow-up letter to the government is probably what became the final nail in the coffin of the Swedish case. I had listed 50 perceived due process violations, some of them serious, and had asked 50 questions that the authorities quite evidently preferred to leave unanswered. After only two months, these 50 allegations and questions would be published on the website of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. This entailed the considerable risk of uncomfortable questions being asked by the press, in Parliament, by an ombudsman, or by a court about the legal responsibilities arising in this case. While it would have been more elegant to maintain the preliminary investigation in a state of undead paralysis, until the case of S. had become time-barred in August 2020, its immediate discontinuation was clearly the safer solution, because it put a formal end to the matter for everyone involved. This was a final nod to the fact that the Swedish Prosecution Authority had never really pursued justice. And the rule of law in this case, neither for Assange nor for the, th for the two women, all three had been instrumentalized and abused by the authorities for the purpose of political persecution and deterrence. Even if, ultimately, the collapse of the Swedish case against Assange had been inevitable, it left a bitter aftertaste. Okay, Let's see who's with us. All right, we have T, Charlie, Kevin, and Mo. Would anybody like to come up here and discuss what was read in the the case of Julian Assange? This poor man um, being strung along by the Swedish Prosecution Authority. I think I've had some earlier remarks today about. This is one of those situations, okay, so to, to my remarks earlier today, I'm looking into processes 
of accountability. You know, the court is one vector of accountability for things that have gone wrong to pursue criminal justice and to get, get the formal authorities to focus their object attention as a government, as enforcers on, on bad acts that, that violate the laws of the people. Okay, that, that's a very formal, you know, direct structure that people approach. Um, but as you can see, it is a flawed system, and in many cases that is abused um, for loopholes and has its own process uh, deviance inside of it, who, who never intend to, to really conform to the interests of the law, which is, which is really unfortunate. That's the nature of corruption. So the press is supposed to function as what they call the fourth estate, which is an accountability measure you know, to add spotlights or sunshine onto bad acts. Okay, when, when that isn't working is when there's something wrong in the press. The press has been commandeered by uh, manipulation, commercial manipulation, counter-governmental manipulation and propaganda, disinformation. So that, that's become all muddled, cloudy, and fogged with uh, contending pieces of information that, that make it very difficult for people to, to feel a moral, uh, a moral footing on, on a case like Assange. They see him as a bad person rather than a journalist who has exhumed a great deal of factual or fact-acting, you know, corruption. Like, here it is. The documents are here. They're right here. You know, they're telling on themselves, here is the government you paid for. And the justice system in those governments, instead of participating in accountability measures that should be precipitous from plain spoken bad acts, okay, you can see it right here on paper. Woo! There's the evidence right there. Someone should just go file a criminal complaint against these actors in the government and coordinate a a turnaround that's what should be happening you know under heat light and pressure from the American say the American public but their corresponding governing publics towards their government that's that should be enough to turn a corrupting influence in the government out get them out of there get them out of their jobs get them just to stop you know corrupting the processes that are there um, that isn't working either. Why is that not working? Because the people inside of the government, who who are these hidden hidden people, they want this. They want to preserve. They're they're embracing some kind of toxic element. They're embracing it and and in a kind of possessive, possessed way. <laughs> um. They're possessed of something quite toxic. And it is to the detriment of the people. So when they turn the gaslights onto, say, like Assange and their lawyering and anyone who speaks up about them, this is this is kind of the Stalinesque atmosphere that the pallor that's kind of come upon the people. Anything you say and do can be criminalized if, you know, if you offend the mob boss in charge, that kind of thing. 
you know, don't don't say anything, don't speak, don't speak these things. Um, I, I met a gentleman. I don't even know if he's a gentleman or not, but I met a guy who um, is in something called criminal crisis response. This is his job. He tells me his, his criminal crisis response. My my best guess is that he is a a hidden government fixer. <laughs> Okay, and I, I said something towards the, this effect earlier, but I'm a I'm a just a walking body going through book tents this weekend. And tells me, don't be plain spoken about your political allegiances, and I'm like, I am in the capital of Austin, Texas. What country do you think you're in <laughs> uh, that you can? I'm sitting here at a book tent in America, in Texas, and you're telling me, this criminal crisis response guy, don't say anything out loud, don't speak. So this is not, this is not the right approach to a, an open society or a non-corrupt society. It's how you deal with people living in a banana republic that's run by a criminal element. That's the advice you give to someone run by a criminal regime. So if he was in Mexico, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll be quiet because the you know sex trafficking sociopaths running running the narcotics game might might get mad, maybe. Okay, there are a lot of dead journalists that put picked up a book about the Mexican dead journalist about that too, okay? But this is in Mexico. So we have these these conventions of accountability that aren't the courts and they're not the press. And those are the kind of accountability measures that, that we have as the public. We need to start having these, for, for lack of a better term, we need to have other powwows about these problems. And we need to start reaching to many different organizations, many different groups, you know, people that we haven't been talking to for in a while. Maybe they have been transformed, maybe they have changed, maybe they have insights and knowledge and understandings. Maybe they have seen some things, you know, since we've been centered and, and you know, scissored off from one to each other. And what else am I, am, am I saying here? What I have seen over the last 10 years, like say since since Snowden Assange, since say 2014, 2015, is that people manufacture, um, you know, a Hollywood facade of accountability and of public restitution to 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 the process, but they they leave the actual actions unfulfilled. Like it's just it's just a a tunnel that you run around in that storm in the teacup as they say they just they just make a place for it it is small and contained and it goes nowhere but that's not real accountability and so you need you need to find a momentous effort to to speak over that you know as as far as i can I can see if you're in that teacup, you get out of the teacup and then use the teacup as a kind of amplifier. And then you start speaking up, one as individuals, and you call the other people who 
may be experiencing something similar to what you have seen and allow them to say in plain speech what they have seen um, without consequence. Like maybe they're not saying it perfectly. You know, you don't, you don't challenge their narrative yet. You just let them get it all out of their, their throat. And then, and then you start maybe assessing certain veracities, like, is it this, is it that? Uh, and then learn to, to have difficult conversations. I realize that, you know, who you, who you confront and why you confront them are two different arts. That's what I'm learning right now, is that who you're confronting, you know, depending on, you know, where they are and on the totem pole, like, they're really top-heavy. Um, sometimes they are the better one to reach out on accountability. They're less evil, far less evil than the people in the middle. The people in the middle are, are scared and competent idiots. And sometimes they are making things so much harder than they ever needed to be based on the threat of even darker, less accountable, lazier, even more competent idiots ahead of them that are there because of the Peter Principle or something. So I'm hoping that as I plot on this journey, I'll share my insights with you here on The Unsanctioned Citizen. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that T and Charlie and Kevin and Shane are with me. Um, if anybody would like to, to wrap this up, does anybody want to jump up here and say a, say a word or two before I get out? Going once, going twice. Okay, that's it. <laughs> All right. This has been day 12 of, of the last 100 days of Colin. Last 12 days of 100 day to, days of Colin. And I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast Archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Call-In. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.